Song of Ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you for the richness and the depth of your word that it speaks into every angle of our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us today and show us your perspective and show us the beauty of your grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a a songwriter, Andrew Peterson, writes a a song about, at the beginning, when he's a a young man, when he's a boy, he likes to sit out on the dock and dream about being a world traveler, going beyond the boundaries, seeing the wonders of God's creation. And very quickly, he gets his wish, he gets to travel mostly from the interstate kind of a letdown. Not all that beautiful. But it's not a depressing song. It's a song that brings him to see wonders differently. And so by the end of the song, he's standing one night, he says, tonight I saw the children in their rooms, little flowers all in bloom, burning suns, silver moon. And somehow in those starry skies, The image of the Maker lies right here beneath my roof tonight. So hold on tight. I'm a world traveler. Peterson is doing something rather odd in that song. He's he's not assessing his life like the world might. He's taking his theology, specifically the doctrine of God, and the doctrine of man, and he's applying it to all of life, even the mundane. That's what Solomon is doing in Psalm 127. Solomon is entering into our lives, knowing the temptation that the world offers to think like it and to live like it. Solomon knew a little about living like the world. And he comes and wants us to start applying our doctrine of God and our doctrine of man to everything we view in life. This wisdom psalm is so deep and so rich. It seems very basic and on the surface, but it goes very deep into our lives, so deeply that uh, by uh, Tuesday morning I went into my office to work on this sermon. By noon I realized I had a good 40-minute sermon And I hadn't reached anything that had to do with children. So that's next week's sermon. 
And we're going to do the, the second half of this psalm first. And then next week, Lord willing, come back and, and seek to see how this applies to multiple areas of life. This week we focus on what God says about children. But no one in this room is uh, left out of Psalm 127. The unbeliever is not left out of Psalm 127. There's something that can be said to the unbeliever here. There's much to be said to the believer. There's much to say to you who are single, as well as those who are married. To those who don't have children, as well as to those who have children. There's much to say to those who think they're doing quite well for themselves, as well as to those who feel like they are failures and are discouraged. This is a rich psalm of wisdom. And next week, I hope to come back and keep mining it for us. But today, we want to look especially at verses 3 through 5. What does God think about children? And specifically, since this is a wisdom psalm, I think it's important for us to ask, what does God say about children in contrast to what the world tells you about your children, our children, other people's children? What does God think in contrast to what the world thinks? Well, there's a lot the Bible says to that, but I think three very basic and important points are made in these short verses. First, children are from God. Isn't that brilliant? Aren't you so glad that you have me? No one else would have come up with that point. From this text, children are from God. It's a basic point. But it's not what you hear. And be honest, it's not always what you think when you're thinking like the world. Right? What does the world think of children? The world thinks children are a mistake. Oops. Children are a misfortune. Or children children are a burden and get in the way. Unless children are my choice at my time and in my way. And then once I have them, maybe maybe then I realized they really were a burden all along anyway. And and I want someone else to deal with them. Uh, Terry Johnson talks about our culture's view of children being societal schizophrenia. Are they good or are they bad? They're bad. No, they're good. I don't want them. Now I want them. I, I put things in my body to keep from having them for years, and five minutes after I stop taking those things, I'm mad because I don't have a child already. Societal schizophrenia. We, we don't know what we think. Because in the end of the day, we think, if anything, a child should be my choice on my terms and my timing. And according to my, my wishes. And they ought to act exactly how I think they ought to act. And bow to me in every conceivable way. It's a very selfish view. 
But that's how the world views children. And that's why there's so much uh, anger and angst and turmoil going on right now in our own society when a law gets overturned. Because it, it confronts how we view children and how we view ourselves. That, that's how we're tempted to think of children far too often. But our text says to us something very basic, something we know, but something we forget, and something we sometimes suppress in unrighteousness, even as believers, that there's a divine giver, a supreme giver, an omniscient and all-wise giver who gives at the right time, even if the circumstances feel like tragedy sometimes. He's still all wise. And he's still the giver. And he's still giving even though he knows your bank account. And everything attached to that in terms of your future now with a child. He's all wise. He's omniscient. He's the divine giver. Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward from Him. You didn't do this on your own. I'm really astonished how many... Maybe this is an aside, but I think it gets to the point that we're not immune to how the world thinks. I'm shocked at how many people my age and younger, Christian couples, talk like they've never taken a biology course about their plans for their future. Well, in a couple of years, we think we're going to have two children, a boy and a girl. Oh, you're going to have a boy and a girl, are you? One of each. Just like that, because that's the plan. I'm, I'm astonished at Christians who go to school, whatever school, Christian school, public, doesn't matter what school you go to, you, you should know biology doesn't work like that. You just can... Do it on your timing and have a boy and a girl or two girls or four girls or whatever. On Amazon will deliver them tomorrow. We forget that there's a divine giver who's in charge. And the text says to us, be wise. When you look at children, when you hear children, remember me. I gave them to you. And they're packaged and wrapped up the right way and given at the right time with the right personality. Children are a gift from God. Remembering that balances us out a lot in ways that we need. One one commentary made this comment. Children are not the fruit of chance, But God, as seems good to him, distributes heritage and reward in opposition to fortune or the strength of men. And then continues with this thought. Unless men regard their children as the gift of God, they are careless and reluctant in providing for them. One imbalance that we see even in the church 
is that we forget God as the giver and therefore we don't take seriously the raising of the child. We get lazy. Christians, maybe the main way that we get lazy, we might have grand themes of of how to school, where to school, and what they're going to do when we're done with our part of their schooling, where they're going to go for schooling. Uh, we might have grand themes of all of that, but perhaps as, as the church, as Christian parents, the thing we neglect the most is spiritual education, spiritual training, seeing the most important field of evangelism in, if you're a parent, the most important field of evangelism in your life lives with you. That, that's how it works. But when we forget God is the giver... We forget that field of training. Or maybe going, going the other direction. Maybe it's not neglect of the children and child raising. Maybe, maybe we adore, adore our children and don't neglect them at all. And we fall into worship. Now, children ought to lead us to worship, shouldn't they? Psalm 8. But instead, we worship the gift instead of the giver who is blessed forever. Amen. Right? Remembering the giver balances us out. We, we can worship our children. That's, that's a problem. And so, or grandchildren. children are from God. Second point that these verses draw to our attention, not only are children from God, but children are a blessing from God. A blessing from God. Again, some of those same thoughts about our culture. Children are my right. I have a right to it. Do, do we have that thought as a culture? If I want it, I deserve it. And we're told here, well, there's a word here that might make you think that you have a right to it. Children are a heritage, an inheritance from the Lord. But when we set what Solomon is saying in the context of everything he says in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs or in the rest of what the Holy Spirit is saying to us in all of Scripture, we have to realize that what Solomon is saying is not that you have a right to this by birth. Rather, as the, the classic commentary Keel and Dalich say, this is an inheritance not according to hereditary right, but in accordance with the free will of the giver. Imagine a multi-million, a billionaire. Million's not much anymore, is it? Be a lot to me. But let's say billionaire. Who maybe was recently just converted and, and she says to herself, I want to leave money to a good cause. I'm going to, I've just found this thing called Sermon Audio. I'm going to jump on Sermon Audio and the first thing listed that's currently live streaming, I'm going to, I'm going to leave that pastor $2 million when I die. 
And if it's at 5 o'clock on, Saturday, on Sunday afternoon, since most churches who do church services do them at 6, it might be Christ Church. And so they, they, I get a letter in the mail. This billionaire died. Nathan, you've just inherited $2 million. What, what should my response to that be? I've never met this person, but yeah, I deserve this. This is my right. No! Wow, this is astonishing. I don't deserve this. And if a billionaire is watching and wants to do that, it'd be better to just send Christ Church your money right now. Instead of to me. But, but that's what the text is saying. It's not saying you have the right, the right to children. It's saying God, when he gives children is giving something astonishing that we didn't work for. You don't inherit in a will, typically, because you worked for it. You inherit because of the giver and his loving free will. But our culture, again, says we have the right. Or, again, our culture says children are a burden. And God says, "Uh uh-uh. Children are a reward. And again, as we compare the rest of Scripture, we again have to agree with Keel and Dalich here that reward does not mean you've done something to earn it. And those of you who don't have children, what have you not done to earn it? No. Reward here again has to do with God giving freely. Something that is rich. Remember what Christ said? When you have done all that you were commanded to do, what do you say? Now, Father, it's time for my reward. No. No. Christ says, We are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. So when God gives us a reward, it's not because we earned it. In fact, when we remember that we deserve no good thing in this life or the next, it's astonishing He gives us any good thing. And He gives us, all who believe, eternal life. And He's also given many here children. What an astonishing thing. Children are an inheritance, a reward. They are of value. And then finally, and very briefly, our text also says children are a security. A security. Again, this stands in contrast to the world, doesn't it? It's thinking about If you were to think about, uh, for example, someone with a full quiver, meaning a lot of children, how does the world view that? The world says many children, many mouths to feed, many clothes to buy, much schooling to pay for, a big drain on my money, a burden. And what does God say? 
Let's start with the same thing. Many mouths who will hopefully grow up and you will have many to feed you when you're old. Remember that not only is it rare throughout much of the world today to have a retirement package, but in the history of the world, it's almost unheard of how privileged so many of us are. Some in this room anyway. How privileged we all are. But it's a rare thing. Solomon talks about your retirement package in most of history and most of the world right here. Many mouths to feed, sure, but many mouths who will grow up and feed your mouth when you're old and decrepit and in need of help. Many strong backs after you fed them to go out and work hard when you can't work anymore. That's how the Bible depicts many children as opposed to the world. Solomon talks about arrows in the hand of a warrior and those who will stand with you when you're contending with your enemy in the gate. Is that following up on the bow analogy? You're guarding your city, here come the enemies, and you have many sons to fight alongside you. Maybe. Or it could be he's giving you two pictures of security. On the one hand, many arrows in your bow to fight the battle. And on the other hand, when you come to the gate, that is the courthouse of ancient Israel, and someone's trying to bring an accusation against you, when you're contending with your neighbor over some issue, you're not standing there all alone. You have people in your corner behind you to encourage you and to back you up. But, but whatever Solomon is saying with that picture, it's a picture of security. Children aren't only from God. And children aren't only a blessing from God. But children are a security for us as they grow up. The children of our youth become our security program in old age. As an aside, we adults need to remember that that's one of the reasons God gave us for our parents to provide for them when they can't provide for themselves. And an important thing to remember, maybe we don't always remember. Children are a gift from God. They are a blessing from God. They are a security from God. How should we respond to such a view of children? I think there are a number of things that we should say and ways we should act in response. First, we should remember who's in charge of our children. Is it you? Actually, after Mia was born, I had someone in this room say, you're not in charge, she's in charge of you. That's also not biblical. If God's the giver, he's the one in charge of how we use that gift and guide that gift and think about that gift. He's in charge. Look back at verses 1 and 2, which we hope to look at more next week, but it drives the point home. 
Unless the Lord builds the house, you labor in vain to build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, you're going to fall asleep on your watch. Even if you get up really, really early in the morning and work until the sun goes down, if you work 12 hours a day, six days a week, and maybe some on Sunday, it'll still be in vain. But the Lord can give you peace in your life and rest. Remember who's in charge of your parenting. These aren't two disconnected psalms. They're two sides to the same psalm. Children who are a gift are still under the authority of God and under his reign and under his rule. And that means that he's in charge of their entire life. Everything about them. Not just when you are given them, but how you are to raise them. And he is the one who is in charge of their eternal state as well. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we have a better understanding of how I was saved. Sometimes we don't. But sometimes we have a better understanding about how we were saved. And we confuse things in our children. Think about what we're told in Titus. I know we're supposed to be taking two weeks off from Titus, but we can't escape it. In Titus, in Titus we read, when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Parents, grandparents, church, we should also remember this with our children. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appears towards our children, if he chooses to save them, it will not be because of works of righteousness which they have done. Because they're such good little angels. And they've been raised by such wonderful parents. And their parents did everything right in raising them in the Lord. No, if our children, and we pray when our children, come to saving faith, whenever that is, and we pray that it will happen sooner than later, it will only be because in His mercy and kindness and love he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us and we pray he will pour out on our children abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior we need to remember who's in charge not only of the first birth but of the second birth And he gives that second birth to whom he will. And will have mercy upon whom he will. And you and I have no more control over it than we have over whether we have children in the first place. We need to remember who is in charge. Peter and Abby, when you take, bring your, your daughter in a few moments for baptism part of what you're confessing you're not coming up here saying because of some water today 
and uh, your pastor, your daughter's saved. Thank God. No. One of the things you're confessing is, you are not your own, but belong with everything that is yours to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that means you are not your own. Your children are not your own. They belong to him as well. There'll be more application coming off of that in a moment. But we need to remember whose our children are. They are not our own. He owns them. And he is in charge. And he alone can give the second birth if he wills. Thanks be to God. He has declared himself to be the type of God that gives many Isaacs and many Jacobs. Although we know we can't see who the Ishmaels are, and we can't always know who the Esaus are in our own homes, yet in Scripture he says, I want you to remember that I am the God who so often calls the children of my children. The promise is to you and to your children and to many who are afar off. As many as I will call. Remember who's in charge. Remember who's in charge. Second, in response to Psalm 127, we need to steward our children. Steward everything God has given us. Remember the parable of the talents. And here's the man who thinks he's being so smart. Well, at least I'm going to give back to him. I didn't starve my children. They didn't die on my watch. I've done my job. No, no, the the parable, which of course is not only talking about children. It's talking about every gift and talent God gives you, every one of you. It's talking about every opportunity he puts in your path for evangelism or for living and uh, gaining and glorifying him in all of life. But that also then includes our children, doesn't it? And we'd better steward what he has given us. If he has given you children, we must steward those children well. If he's given you grandchildren, you, you get to be a part of that stewarding. And, and hopefully steward it well. Raising our children, the New Testament says, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Paul says that, but don't you hear Solomon? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Don't be stupid in raising your children. Raise them in the fear of the Lord. Raise them to be wise, not in their own eyes. Raise them to see whose eyes they need to be wise in. And that in Christ is the only way to be wise. We need to raise our children in the Lord, for this is right. Every member of the church gets to be a part of that. Isn't that astonishing? Didn't our society think it so brilliant when when someone talked, what, 20 years ago, about needing a village? 
Awards were given out. But God has always included his community in the raising of children, both in the Old Testament and in the church of the New Testament. I don't see any awards being given out for that. Our reward is in heaven. And every member of this church, you get to be a part of the raising the children of this church in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's a different part with different responsibilities. But we all get to be a part of that. Isn't that exciting? Parents, there's no greater calling in your life than fulfilling your calling in witnessing to your spouse and secondly, witnessing to your children, right? Peter, the only thing more important in your life as a calling right now than raising your daughters in the fear and admonition of the Lord, the only thing more important is loving Abby. Being a deacon is not more important than that because we can be mediocre pastor and and deacon. I'm not saying you are. But we could be and still be godly parents and husbands. But we can't be godly officers if we are not fulfilling our calling at home. We need to use our talents for the Lord, raising children for Him. What is the chief means we have, parents, for doing this thing? It's the means of God's grace. The reading of the Word of God in the home. Praying with and for our children. And bringing them to church to sit beneath the preaching of the Word. And to expose them to the sacraments. And explain to them the sacraments. So that they grow up seeing God's grace in action. We need to remember who's in charge. And that no matter how well we steward our children... We can't save them. Remember who's in charge. But we also need to steward our children for the Lord. And third, I think this is very important from this text, especially as we look at the culture around us today. We need to celebrate our children. And celebrate children in general. How do we view our our neighbors' annoying kids? is even a part of this. Although, of course, we need to start in our own homes and in our own church, celebrate the children God gives. We are celebrating God's goodness. And I thought of two ways, two places where we can especially be tempted to fail at this. And even though it feels like these are areas that wouldn't be great for evangelism, I think if we trust Jesus, they will be. Uh, I'll I'll start with us as a church, and then I'll move to parents in particular. As a church, this is one of the great areas for that. What is one of the chief areas we're tempted to not positively treat, view, and look at, at children in worship when they're loud? Right? They're distracting us. 
and I, I hate to break it to many of you, but it's a lot. It's about to get a lot louder up in here. <laughs> Mariah is very quiet today, but Asher and I might have children that are not as quiet very soon here, and and, and it'll throw everything off. Or Mariah might decide to wake up one of these mornings, or or whatever. It's about to get a lot louder here. How do we view that? Well, obviously, we can be thankful for a cool nursery downstairs for parents to use as needed. And when our children are just absolutely distraught, that's probably what they need from us. And that's fine. But how do we as a church view the children and their normal sounds, even when it distracts a little during the sermon? I think I was contemplating this this week. What if we had a bunch of visitors that weren't Christians today? We had some visitors, but I, I, I think most of you profess to be Christians, or all of you at least. Uh, but um, what if there were some unbelievers here today? Wouldn't our struggle be, oh, but this is getting in the way of them hearing the gospel? How many of you have visited a church and you walked in and as you walked in with children, someone met you at the door and said, and you can take your children downstairs. But I remember my sister telling me that that happened. No, 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 no. Don't bring your children in here. This is for serious worship. You know, take your children downstairs. No, it's okay. We take them to church with us every week. We want them with us. And we don't know any of you. So we don't really want to drop them off with you either. No, 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 no children, no children here. They ended up leaving, I think. Uh, is that the impression? Is that the best way? I'm sure that the thought pattern went like this. How will they hear the gospel guests if they're distracted by children? I sometimes think we're too hard on the disciples. We read in three short sentences that these parents brought their children to be touched and blessed by Jesus. And the disciples said, what are you doing here? Get out of here. That's how we read it. What, what are you thinking? Get these children out of here. No one wants children around here. And we think, what horrible people those disciples were. But don't you think maybe that those disciples were thinking something like, we will never hear a sermon by a pastor like this anywhere else. Because God the Son the Messiah is preaching right now. Friends, you will never hear a sermon from this pulpit, even if it's not me. You'll never hear a sermon half as good. And you definitely won't from me. As what was being interrupted when the disciples said, hang on, don't, don't distract from Jesus talking. The Son of God was preaching. And the disciples merely wanted to help that message get through undistracted. Are we like the disciples? Or are we like our Savior? I hope I'm a pastor who would be like our Savior with this. Who would be willing if needed to say, you know what, I have this message I was giving, but let's hit pause. There's a bigger sermon going on here. I would hope that an unbeliever would see not only what God thinks of children, but, but that an unbeliever would get the opportunity to see through our example that we know the gospel 
is about helpless, frail, needy people who cannot save themselves anymore than Mariah could feed herself right now. By the grace of God through faith, being saved. Not of works. I, I hope that's the testimony an unbeliever would hear. They might be confused. Why are we pushing pause on a sermon for this? Or why are we putting up with this? Or why is everyone smiling instead of scowling? When there's all this distraction going on. And I would hope after the service, someone might get the opportunity to say, because no one is saved unless they have faith like a child's faith. Do, do we believe that? That's a conclusion we should draw from Psalm 127 as Christ further unpacks it for us in worship when he takes the children and blesses them. Some of you have heard before, I I had a pastor in uh, college who put this into real practice, I think. Sometimes there would be a child really distraught. I remember one time particularly, a child was being uh, escorted from the room by his parents to um, go to another room for a little loving discipline in the fear of the Lord and, and was expressing it quite loudly in the middle of the sermon, my pastor, who would refer to that wailing as the song of the covenant. <laughs> the song of the covenant. And I remember him praying right in the middle of the sermon for that child and for all of us. And he did include that we would be able to keep our focus for the remainder of the sermon. But first he prayed that that lament being sung in the Song of the Covenant would lead to the fear and admonition of the Lord and the coming of that child to Christ at a young age. What a different perspective that is. Are we willing to be like Christ, not the disciples, and say, maybe there's something more important here. As I prayed about this all of last week, it struck me because I I started to write on a scrap of paper that having this attitude of Christ's is of eternal value to the children. And that's true. But as I was writing that on a scrap of paper, I thought, no, this is of eternal value to you. Even if in the moment you feel a little bit like you're distracted and inconvenienced. If Christ says, don't forbid it, it's good. It's a good moment because my kingdom's made up of children. And also, none of you got in unless you had faith like the children. Then that means it's of eternal value for you as well. Celebrate God's goodness. Even when it feels to our sin, sin tainted hearts like it's an inconvenience in worship. And then, parents at home, of course, the, the moments when we can forget the, 
celebration of the goodness of God are plentiful. You're changing a diaper while the other kid screams for no apparent reason. And, right? Just. Or something else. It's 3 a.m. Why are we awake? That's a struggle for me. How do we think in those moments? It says a lot. It says a lot about how we understand Psalm 127, doesn't it? Will we, as parents, will we be as wise as Solomon and as Andrew Peterson and realize that right here, in this moment, stinky moment, loud moment, whatever moment, exhausting moment, right here beneath my roof, the image of God lies, cries. Isn't that astonishing? You could go to the furthest galaxy. You will not be brought closer to see God than in the image which He has beneath your roof, which screams at you sometimes. The image of God which you have the the calling and the privilege from God sometimes to discipline. That's weird. Astonishing. Are we celebrating God's goodness in the midst of all of this congregation as we hear the image of the Maker crying in worship? Are we celebrating God's goodness? He's the giver. He's the giver of good gifts. He's the giver of security. And He calls us to remember Him and raise them for Him and celebrate Him through them. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, We thank you for these children, each one of them here. Lord, we we thank you that the older we are in this room, the more children we have on our list to thank you for. We thank you for those who have professed faith. We thank you for those who are adults in the church, another church perhaps even. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for each of our children. Lord, we thank you for the ones that perhaps don't profess the faith. And we pray for them, that even adults who have gone out might still, by us, be shown the example of the fear and admonition of the Lord, the glory of your gospel. Lord, we thank you for our children of every age, and we pray that we would see them rightly as your good gift, that we would celebrate you richly as our great God and giver of every good thing. And Lord, Lord, invade our hearts and lives that we would see with heavenly eyes and not tainted by this world's lies. And may that lead to the gospel going forth with power for the glory, the glory of your name. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Our hymn of response this morning is found in the hymnal 719, A Christian Home, 719, Stand With Me If You Are Able. celebrating a sacrament together, which in our church only happens, I think the average is less than once a year, uh, unfortunately. But uh, Peter and Abby have been helping us with that average being close to one a year. (laughs) As we think about baptism, we need to remember what baptism is, and, and usually I would call the parents up now, but... I want to remind us what baptism is, and so before I make them have to stand up, 
uh, let's think about that together. Our Lord Jesus Christ instituted baptism as a covenant sign and seal of his church. He uses it not only for the solemn admission of the person who is baptized into the visible church, but also to depict and confirm his engrafting of that person into himself and his including that person in the covenant of grace. The Lord uses baptism to portray to us that we and our children are conceived and born in sin and need to be cleansed. He uses it to witness and seal to us the remission of sins and the bestowal of all the gifts of salvation through union with Christ. Baptism with water signifies first the washing of regeneration by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The time of our outward baptism uh, also points us, though, to the spiritual realities that flow out from that. Having been washed and renewed as a believer, by faith you are to live as one who has been brought back to life by Christ Jesus. And we're to teach and train our children that they are to lay hold of that faith and live for him. In our baptism, the Lord puts his name on us, claims us as his own, and summons us to assume the obligations of the covenant. He calls us to believe in Christ Jesus as our Savior, to renounce the devil, the world, and the flesh, and to walk humbly with our God in devotion to his commandments. As solemn vows are about to be made before you, the baptism which is now to be administered before you should draw each of you who have been baptized to reflect on your own baptism to reflect not just upon that moment, but upon the calling which your baptism called you to. Christ has put his name and claim upon you if you have been baptized. He calls you to be repentant, not once long ago, but to live the life of repentance. Repentance for the sins that you daily commit against your covenant God. To confess your faith before men and to live in newness of life to God who sealed his covenant with you by the blood of his own son. There's a lot there to consider, isn't there? Baptism is a rich thing. And it's not a one and done thing. It's something you reflect on through life, and particularly you are called to reflect on it today. Well, Peter and Abby, would you bring your family up here for this?
Although our children do not yet understand the things that have been said about baptism, and some, to some extent not any of the things about faith perhaps, yet uh, they are nevertheless to be baptized. For God commands that all who are under his covenant of grace be given the sign of the covenant. God has made the promise of the covenant to believers and their offspring. In the Old Testament, he declared to Abraham, And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your seed after you, in their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto you and your children after you. For this reason, in the Old Testament, God commanded that covenant infants be given the sign of circumcision. Even though, ironically, that same day, he said, That son will not inherit faith and grace, but circumcise him anyway. An astonishing thing. The covenant is the, is the same in essence in both the Old and the New Testaments. Indeed, the grace of God for the consolation of believers is even more fully manifested in the New Testament. Thus, rather than rescinding the promise of the covenant, to believers and their offspring in the New Testament. God reaffirms it in Acts 2.39. He declares, The promise is unto you and to your children. He says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, and your house. Acts 16.31. And he affirms that if even one of the parents is a believer, the children are holy, that is, the children are set apart from being just like all the children of the world and how we view them by the faith of that parent. 1 Corinthians 7, 14. Moreover, our Savior admitted little children into his presence, embracing them and blessing them and saying, of such is the kingdom of heaven. And so in the New Testament, no less than the Old, the children of believers are an interest, have an interest in the covenant and a right to that covenant sign and to the outward privileges of the covenant people, the church. In the New Testament, baptism has replaced circumcision as the covenant sign. Therefore, by the covenant sign of baptism, children of believers are to be distinguished from the children of the world and solemnly admitted into this visible church. So, responding to that, I asked Peter and Abby if you would respond to these questions regarding your faith in our covenant God. Do you believe the Bible, consisting of the Old and New Testaments, to be the Word of God and its doctrine of salvation to be the perfect an only true doctrine of salvation. Sorry, I'm yelling because the mic's over there. I don't know why I was expecting you to yell. You don't need to. Uh, do, do you acknowledge that although, although our children are conceived and born in sin, and therefore are subject to condemnation, they are holy in Christ by virtue of the covenant of grace, and as children of the covenant, are to be baptized. Do you promise to teach Moriah diligently the principles 
of our holy Christian faith, revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, and summarized in the confession of faith of this church. Do you promise to pray regularly with and for Mariah, as with also Zion and Noah, and to set an example of piety before them and godliness before them? Do you promise to endeavor, by all the means that God has appointed, to bring Moriah with Zion and with Noah up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, encouraging them to appropriate for themselves the blessings and to fulfill the obligations of the covenant? Thank you. 